Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including eBooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. I'm Judith Tannen from the New Books Network. Today, I am pleased to speak with Linda L. Michaels, editor of the expansive book, Advancing Psychotherapy for the Next Generation, Humanizing Mental Health Policy and Practice, edited by Linda L. Michaels, Tom Woldridge, Nancy Burke, and Janice R. Muir. Linda is not only an editor of this book, but the chair and co-founder of the Psychotherapy Action Network, Scion, consulting editor of Psychoanalytic Inquiry, clinical associate faculty of the Chicago Center for Psychoanalysis, and fellow of the Lauder Institute Global MBA program. Linda is a psychologist with a private practice in Chicago. This book brings together a global community of mental health professionals to offer an impassioned defense of relationship-based depth therapy. Expressing ideas that are integral to the mission of the Psychotherapy Action Network, Scion, the authors demonstrate a shared vision of a world where this therapy is accessible to all communities. They also articulate the difficulties created by the current mental health diagnostic system and differing conceptualizations of mental distress, the short-sightedness of evidence-based care and research, and the depreciation of depth therapy by many stakeholders. The authors thoughtfully elucidate the crucial importance of therapies of depth, insight, and relationship in the repertoire of mental health treatment and speak to the implications of Scion's mission both now and in the future. With a distinguished international group of authors and a clear focus on determining a future direction for psychotherapy, this book is essential reading for all psychotherapists. Linda, welcome to the podcast. Your book covers many important topics. I was hoping you could read a few pages so that listeners could better appreciate your writing style. How does that sound? That sounds great. Yeah. Great. Thank you, Judith, and to the podcast for inviting me and your interest in our book and our mission. I'd, I'd love to read a little bit from our introduction, which was written jointly with Janice Muir and Nancy Burke. Great. As therapists, we are devoted to the delicate painstaking work of individual change that happens in the sheltered intimacy of our offices, where we provide opportunities for thinking and feeling before acting and sometimes instead of acting. Within that protected space and time, the therapy relationship provides both the canvas and the vehicle for healing and growth. At the same time, we cannot confine our vision of our role solely to that therapeutic space nor can we view our patient's suffering in isolation 
from their experiences beyond its walls. As we continue to develop our appreciation for the integrity and import of our patients' psychic lives, we do so recognizing the environments in which they're embedded, viewing through their eyes the formative relationships, achievements, and all too often injustices that have shaped them. In parallel, if our profession and the transformative gifts it yields are to survive, we must embrace acting on behalf of the very work we do in the environments in which we practice. These environments not only influence internal worlds, but also play a significant role in determining the very possibility of accessing such intensive therapeutic opportunities. We cannot ignore the financial, ideological, and cultural forces that impinge on our work, both in establishing a therapeutic process in the first place and in conducting one in which healing from these forces can occur. The world outside has shifted dramatically, socially, culturally, economically, and politically, and we need to take notice and action if we want therapies of depth, insight, and relationship to confirm and expand their place of meaning and relevance in helping others navigate that world. In short, psychotherapy is in the crosshairs, and its survival, especially for those who cannot afford to pay out-of-pocket for treatment or advanced training, will depend upon the skill and strength of our advocacy. Our national crises, the pandemic, the reckonings with racial, social, economic, gender, tensions and truths, have raised awareness of the impacts of social upheaval and have energized and empowered an activist citizenry devoted to defending our vision of a world in which empathy guides action. By drawing therapists, generally a reclusive bunch, out of their consulting rooms and into the world, such advocacy and action cannot help but reinforce appreciation of and support for efforts to recognize the effects of traumas upon psyches and cultures and the urgent need to remediate them. We are hoping to provide a home for these advocates that is large enough to hold practitioners and non-practitioners alike. It is our belief that in so doing, therapies of depth, insight, and relationship will be valued on a widespread basis for their vital role in protecting and acknowledging personal, interpersonal, and cultural embodied experience in ways that algorithmic, one-size-fits-all, symptom-focused treatments simply cannot. Ooh, crosshairs, drama, a lot of key words there. Thank you, Linda. I, I was hoping you could read because I think you've kind of answered my question of the motivation for this book, which also brings me to the perfect place to start with, I kept saying scion the Psychotherapy Action Network. Could you tell us a little bit about your organization? Sure. Um, we started off um, in January of 2017, and that was after a conference, a three-day conference that was held in Chicago. It was initially organized um, primarily by Nancy Burke, and Janice Muir worked on that as well. I attended as an audience member and coming out of that, um, the three of us and many others were really fired up. It was a multidisciplinary conference with clinicians, 
uh, legislators, former lobbyists from the insurance industry. I mean, just a range of people who could speak to, you know, really the systemic nature of the problems that depth therapy was encountering, namely that in many ways it was being pushed out of the treatment set uh, consideration that insurance companies want to pay for, marginalized in a number of different ways, um, no longer taught as fully in the academic worlds, and younger therapists, earlier therapists, were not being trained in these these methods. And um, even the public, when they're exposed to information about mental health or therapy or different treatments, which there is more and more of that now in the press with so many celebrities and athletes and talking about it, and of course the mental health needs that many of us have coming out of the pandemic, um, you know, the conversation, the reporting seems to mainly center on uh, the solutions of, of pharmaceuticals, um, apps, you know, things like that. And the shorthand is, is really CBT and medications. And I'm not here to bash CBT at all. We need it. Um, I use it. Many of us use it, those techniques. Um, but really, that, that's the only thing people are exposed to in many different ways. And we were really, really concerned for the future of, of our profession because we know in, from many of our own experiences how deeply powerful and transformative a therapy, as we call it, depth, insight, and relationship can be. Well said. Thank you so much. And who knew an audience member could promote such change? So here's <laughs> to audience members. You touched on a, a really important point. First of all, I noticed you continually use psychotherapies of depth. Can you, and I think you mentioned to me that it's a copyrighted term. Can you talk about that? Yes. Yes. We've coined that phrase, depth, insight, and relationship. And we use that so often. um, We really tried to, you know, come up with something that would be useful, descriptive, accurate, um, and also understandable by more people than those who study in psychoanalytic institutes. We wanted to uh, get rid of the jargon, get rid of the labels, and really boil down to its, its essence what these therapies, these principles are that um, are so effective and so useful. And we really centered on depth, insight, and of course, the all-important relationship um, between the patient and the therapist. And um, there are many different schools of therapy that uh, embrace these principles, and all of those are welcome at Cyan, and we hope to speak for all of them. Um, and we've used this phrase so often in our book, in our materials, on our website, um, that we actually copyrighted that phrase with the federal government. So if you do go to our <laughs> website and our, our writings, wherever we say therapies of depth, insight, and relationship, um, it's now trademarked to Cyan, which which is kind of cool. Kind of. Very cool. Um, you know, and as you're speaking in all the different branches, for lack of a better word, it's it's a nice family, so to speak. But I, I kind of feel like we're almost talking about the power of the edible. Instead of us being siblings trying to be equalized and trying to get along, there's this hierarchical structure. And I don't know. I... I feel like there's such a war between the, the, the camps. 
and that there's tension. When you say CBT, people are like, oh, oh, it's great. There's There doesn't seem to be an understanding that we're all trying to do the same thing. Do you know what I'm saying? Absolutely. Absolutely. And, um, you know, that's one of the reasons why it's so painful to think about um, these valuable therapies being pushed out of the conversation um, just because of the results of a turf war. And um, so that was really, yes, one of the motivating factors for starting Psychotherapy Action Network and for uh, informing all that we do. And just to say a little bit more about how we've grown since our beginnings, um, that initial conference, we walked out of there with you know, a lot of names and email addresses handwritten on a sheet of paper. Huh. And from there, we've built an organization. We now have over 5,600 individual members and over 90 different organizations that have joined us. And um, we really feel we're, <laughs> it's a movement at this point. And we would really like to reach the public educate them, demystify therapy, and get out of these turf wars, uh, as you're saying, within different forms of therapy, um, because we're only hurting ourselves, and by extension, the general public who, who really needs our help. Correct. And before I forget, just in case people are heeding the call to the movement, um, your organization would simply be PSIAN.org. Is that how they would find you? Right. Our acronym is PSI, Psychotherapy, A-N, PSIAN.org. Thank you. Um, yes, thank you. And and just speaking of the turf wars, it feels like there's this backlash within at least the psychoanalytic community. I, I don't want to... I don't want to use a wide brush, but there is this tension between evidence-based techniques, evidence-based studies. Could you talk a little bit about that? Should we be in fear of them? Shouldn't we be welcoming evidence-based things that work? Sure. I, I think absolutely. And we actually, by we, I mean uh, depth therapies, psychoanalytic therapies, we actually have a whole lot of solid powerful evidence that shows these therapies are are two things. Number one, highly effective. Um, and number two, effective over the long term. Even after people stop going to therapy, they continue to improve, which is something unique to the therapy, to these depth therapies, um, with many short-term uh, interventions that might be more structured therapies or medications. People, the research shows that people, when they stop those those therapies or treatments, um, most often they relapse. Um, most of them within four to twelve months after they stop. So it's really an incredible evidence story. And I think, you know, historically the psychoanalytic field has has said, oh, we don't need evidence. We don't want to get involved in, in that. And that was truly put us behind. Um, because there was a lot of evidence building and gathering and documenting going on in the pharmaceutical industry and also in academia and this world of psychology. And so there's been a large quantity of evidence for uh, 
medications for CBT. And certainly that is a valuable body of evidence. And the psychoanalytic world is is catching up. Um, so absolutely, <laughs> hopefully we can move the conversation and shift it to one of, you know, which therapy will work best for which person in which circumstance from which culture and which moment, um, as opposed to, you know, which one has, you know, a, a bigger evidence base. I mean, that's not really all that useful to people in the real world who are suffering. Correct. And and this is a greater topic, which I know you talk about in the book. So before we talk about your Zion's original research on this, I just wanted to jump back a minute to the power of what goes on in our country and speak of parity and the huge influence that money makes and your um, work with insurance companies, et cetera, if you could, first of all, I don't know that many people even understand the, the term parity. If you mm -hmm. can explain that and then talk about what you've done as an organization with fighting, for lack of a better word, the government. Yeah, well, fighting is, is a pretty good word. <laughs> um, well, yeah, and you know, this is a, a consequence of the field's efforts to be included in the medical model um, of healthcare in this country. And that was probably a separate conversation, uh, wow. but for better or worse, um, you know, we are included in the medical model, um, just like the, the other kinds of treatments, which are generally called medical surgical. Um, so there's medical surgical, and then there's health, mental health care. And insurance companies um, do not like to pay for mental health care. They think it goes on too long. Um, it's squishy. It's not able to be objectively documented, like there are no diagnostic tests such as x-rays or blood tests to show whether or not, you know, a patient it meets a certain diagnosis. And as Nancy McWilliams has a wonderful chapter in our book, you know, we have all of the questions of the DSM in the, in the first place about how useful of a diagnostic tool is is the DSM, which is based on, you know, checklists of, of behavioral observable symptoms. Um, and it's, it's a very complicated way um, to go about diagnosing people um, and differentiating between different diagnoses. And, and Nancy, as like I said, has incredible chapter on, on all of that. But parity um, in the insurance world means that um, if insurance companies have certain procedures or rules for the kind and amount of medical surgical care that they will pay for, they have to have comparable um, comparable coverage for mental health care. So they cannot be more restrictive or less generous or have more administrative hoops or, you know, any more of, of those kinds of, of obstacles for mental health care um, if they do not have those for medical care. So if they're not making your dermatologist fill out a form after you've gone to them a few times and say, really? Is this really medically necessary that you treat this patient for dermatological services today? If they're not requiring um, that from your dermatologist or endocrinologist or cardiologist, they cannot require that 
of your therapist. Now, unfortunately, there are many loopholes yes. that insurance companies, um, I, I, but just my fantasy is that they have entire departments um, just dedicated to investigating and uncovering loopholes. Um, I don't know if they really do, but they are masters at um, at leveraging these loopholes. And so even though parity, um, the Parity Act was first passed in 2008 and then further strengthened in 2010 with the Affordable Care Act, um, there are still so many, so many discrepancies and so many ways in which therapists are more impinged upon um, and also less compensated on a relative basis for their expertise and their services than medical surgical doctors are on the other side. So um, it seems like we finally have um, some interest in the Biden administration in putting some real teeth into the enforcement of parity, which is great. And um, Cyan, we recently sent in some comments to the government and the Department of Labor that is is looking for suggestions on how to increase and improve enforcement. We provided comments, as did many other organizations, and I really hope that we're going to be starting to see um, some actual improvements here, because I, I think if more therapists had the assurance that you know they could participate in network um, with an insurance company, get adequately reimbursed for their services without um, additional hassle, um, you know, I think they probably would do that. And the access problems to therapy that we hear a lot about, there's not enough therapists or people need therapy, they can't find a therapist. I think a lot of those access problems would, would be greatly diminished um, if if this were were rectified. Agreed. And at that, I'm sorry to say to you, it was probably another book because <laughs> the, we could talk about state laws versus... Uh, at, okay. Yes. So it's, it's incredibly complicated. It, and really, yeah, it's in those details that the insurance companies really secure ad, advantage for themselves um, because they're... I mean, that's also another very basic okay. thing we pointed out to the government in our comments was that you know, the way things are set up, it's the onus is put on the therapist for identifying and flagging whether something is a parity violation. What, how are we supposed to know how the insurance company plan or policy covers medical surgical? And how are we supposed to know it's even a parity violation? So it, it, there's just so many, so many complicating factors. And, and not to beat a dead horse, but the patient as well. So many patients are even unaware of their insurance and what is providing and if they have out of network, et cetera, et cetera. Exactly. So yes, your next book. But before we get to your next book, <laughs> I want to jump back to the original research you did because I think that's so important. I was fascinated by what I read about and what, what your research with the public showed. So could you talk about that a little bit? Sure, sure. Yeah. Um, a friend and colleague of mine, Santiago Del Bois, and I um, interestingly have um, similar career paths. Our first careers were in 
uh, the business world, and we didn't know each other at that point, but we both happened to do a lot of market research and a lot of um, consumer insights work to understand consumers and their motivations and why they made certain decisions to buy or not buy things and um, and all kinds of issues like that. And then both of us made a career transition into um, the psychology and social work world. And so we're now clinicians ourselves. So we have this kind of um, similar backgrounds, um, which is very fun. And we said, you know, we we are familiar with tools that can help us understand, you know, this misinformation, this lack of understanding among the public about what therapy, what are the differences between different kinds of therapies, what they might look for, what what do they want. And so we said, let's, let's apply these tools that we have from the market research world. Um, and we were able to do this. Um, we did the work ourselves, and we had a small grant from the McCary Fund through Division 39, for which we're very grateful. Um, but, you know, typically this kind of a research project would be way out of reach um, for our field. But I'm really, really so excited that we were able to do it. We did uh, qualitative research. Uh, we did about 46 or so one-on-one in-depth interviews that ranged um, between 30 to 75 minutes per person. We did a, um, a lot of those with different people around the country. And then we used that to develop our hypotheses. And then we launched a an online quantitative survey, the general public. Um, we have over 1,500 responses to that. And it, the sample is, is the general public, as, as I said, um, but it's representative of the U.S. population in terms of key variables, in terms of age, gender, race, geographic region, and income. So we, we sought that out, and, and that's what we used the grant money for, to hire a professional market research firm to execute that so we could ensure we had a representative sample. And we just, that was in uh, 2020, sort of just on the cusp of the pandemic, and then we did a- another quantitative survey um, recently. We're analyzing the data as we speak, um, 2023. So we will soon have sort of post can we hopefully say post-pandemic? Post-pandemic uh, results on what the public thinks and hopes and wants from, from therapy and compare that to the 2020 results. But in a nutshell, what we what we heard and what we found out was incredibly good news for depth therapy. Um, when we open-endedly asked the public, what do you want to get out of therapy? Um, they said, I want to get to the root of my issues and myself. And that is really one of the primary things that we can help them with as depth therapists. They said they understand therapy takes time. They understand that their problems have taken quite a bit of time, perhaps even generations, uh, to take hold. And it's going to take some time to to get better. And they're willing to invest that time um, in the therapy process itself and obviously also in themselves because they're worth it. 
Um, so it's incredibly good good support. We are doing what the public wants when they think of, of therapy. Um, there was a small segment of people that said, I'm never going to therapy, just, you know, um, give me the pill. I'm never opening up and talking to anybody. And, you know, obviously it would be a reach to try to help those people. But for the vast majority, um, we're doing what, what what they are trying to seek out. They just don't know where to go. As you said, they don't know if their insurance even covers mental health care at all. A third of them don't even know anything about that and their insurance policy. And they really don't know what kind of therapy is is focuses on on they just really there's so many questions that they have and so what we're trying to do is figure out how we can help educate the public on some of these key issues and and close some of these loops so that if they you know do want to find a therapist who can help them get to the root of themselves you know we will be able to help connect them with with some resources and some reliable information Exactly. I, I, one of the strange positives of the pandemic is that there's been more of a focus on the necessity for mental health care. Mm-hmm. But of course, we don't have the infrastructure and like so many other things we discovered. But the other thing I'm, I'm thinking about, it's not just the money, it's the time, Linda. Mm-hmm. People spent, it takes a long time to understand yourself in therapy, right? It took a long time to develop these patterns. And so it takes a long time to kind of uncover them. And that is really a factor for a lot of these insurance plans because they only cover limited numbers of sessions, correct? (laughs) And then I feel like it's a double whammy because then in order to do the research and provide the evidence-based functioning of these long-term therapies, it requires long-term studies and lots of money and Etc. Cetera, Etc. Cetera, mm-hmm. Which is what I feel. So I kind of feel like, of course, CBT and medication and gets it's easier to to prove those. Does that make any sense? Do you know what Absolutely. I'm saying? Absolutely. Yeah, it's very easy to study something for eight weeks, right? Um, and now even with with some of the um, psychedelics, I've seen research studies that lasted two weeks. Wow. Example. Huh. And. Yes. And so, of course, you know, if you're an academic who needs to publish or you're going to perish, right? Um, of course, you're going to be incented to, you know, study things that um, take less time so you can produce more research papers. Um, but right. I mean, it, we're not really going to be seeing a lot of uh, studies of two-year, three-year-long therapies. But there is research out there, actually. They have studied long-term therapy. They have gone back to people one year post-therapy, two years, um, even eight years, very small sample. But they are doing this research now, and the results are incredibly impressive that, as I said before, people continue to improve because they have benefited from that relationship with their therapist. They've understood themselves, internalized you know, important information, develop different ways of relating um, with people in the world. And they're putting that into good use and, and continuing to improve in their lives. So um, I, I do think a lot of things are, are turning around, but um, there is still so much um, that the public does not know and needs our help to better understand. 
Agreed. And speaking of the public, um, you know, there's been a long history of psychoanalysis, psychotherapy for the, you know, ivory tower class, so to speak. And, and I know that you feel strongly about changing that. And you've mentioned that that is one of the goals of Scion. Can you talk about educating the public, letting more people understand what's available to them? Sure. Yeah. And there is, you know, in, in the book, there's one chapter, um, well, a couple in particular that I'm thinking of um, that speak to this as well. I mean, there's a great chapter by Usha Tamalanara about um, using psychoanalysis with diverse populations. There's another chapter by Erica Schmidt um, focusing on the inner life of, of children. So these are, are populations that historically have not received as much attention in the psychoanalytic world and and so but definitely should be able to access these therapies um and yeah as far as educating the public um we are adding you know information to our website to help educate them and address some of the questions that we talked about earlier questions people have they don't know about different kinds of therapies and we're also going to be putting resources right on our website um, that folks can search through and including low-cost clinics. Um, these might be the clinics that are attached to analytic institutes that serve the community in Chicago. There's a really vibrant one here, um, for example, and other community clinics that have a depth orientation. They're few and far between, but we really want to be able to highlight those. and. Um, you know, in in a big awareness campaign, we did receive an incredibly generous grant following the research that we did, uh, which was very exciting. And so we are we're excited to sp spend that money, um, hopefully to to good end, um, to educate and inform the public. I feel like you guys should be on TikTok. <laughs> You're not the first one to say that. Um, I haven't quite gotten myself organized around that idea, but <laughs> because you know, it is yes. interesting though to think about our cultural moment that people go to TikTok to get diagnoses, et cetera, et cetera. So, mm -hmm. just say it, um, right? And then it's also that. I was just going to, no, it reminded me of some of the other things that we've done at Cyan, which have been to, you know, push back on, on advertising to the public that we feel is misleading or shortchanges them. And some of that advertising comes from a lot of the, the big therapy apps. Um, and we've done a number of things to try to set the record straight when it comes to that. and But yes, if you go on TikTok, if you turn on the radio, I mean, you'll hear a lot of advertising for these apps, um, some of which we have a lot of concerns with that, you know, it's it's they've violated privacy and confidentiality um, by sharing data of, of clients, customers, it's hard to call them clients or patients, but customer, right. I call them customers. Um, and... Um, yeah, it's it's been very problematic, and um, they've put therapists in dual roles of both providing therapy and also being a salesperson for the company um, to try to retain or upsell um, sure. the 
the clients. And so, yes, we've really taken strong stands on this. We've written to the FTC. We've been sued by one of these companies uh, for defamation and, and libel and um, just a little bit of chump change, $40 million. So we're very lucky to have um, prevailed in, in that lawsuit. Um, but these are the waters we're wading into with these corporations um, who are you know, trying to make a lot of money off of this moment where there's high demand for therapy, low information, lots of confusion, and the companies see a real opportunity to make money, whereas we see, oh my gosh, people are suffering and need help. Do you care to give a two-sentence description of that lawsuit? Sure. Um, yeah, we um, wrote a few different letters of concern to the American Psychological Association, um, and both of the letters uh, were about uh, Talkspace, which was an app at that time mainly focused on text texting back and forth between a client and a therapist. And um, this has been well documented that there was, at the time, really barely any evidence showing that texting was was useful. Um, there were lots of privacy concerns. They had business managers reading the text transcripts, um, so obviously breaking confidentiality. And I, trying to show therapists opportunities. Here's where you could have said something to get this person to buy more services. Um, so really focused on on increasing their bottom line and, and not on, on helping people. And so we had a number of, of these kinds of very basic concerns. And again, the dual roles, as I mentioned, we wrote a letter to the APA. And lo and behold, later that day, uh, we heard from Talkspace's lawyers somehow. Um, I've written an article about this with some of my ideas about how that happened. Um, and then three weeks later, Talkspace filed a lawsuit. And uh, right after that, our lawyers resigned and said, <laughs> yeah. we, we, we can't help you with this. It's not above and beyond. Um, so we were able to find uh, pro bono representation from Arnold, Arnold and Porter out of New York, and we're grateful, grateful, grateful um, to Dory Hainsworth and her, her legal team for helping us um, prevail with this First Amendment issue, our right to free speech, um, to voice our concerns, and the judge also thankfully agreed. Um, but yeah, they have no hesitation about filing lawsuits and which otherwise would have taken hundreds of thousands of, of dollars to defend had we not found pro bono help. Um, it's it's very dangerous to, to speak out and say something that they don't like um, because they will call their lawyers and, and be very aggressive about it. Um, but that has not stopped us. Well, I'm glad to hear that. And <laughs> speaking of not stopping, you spoke of the dual roles. Mm -hmm. The dual role also of therapists these days, I think Cyan is kind of asking for action as well. Mm -hmm. tell, tell us about how you view the clinician, not just as a clinician, but kind of advocating. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we're, we're hoping that people will be inspired and, um, and also just, you know, if, if they, whether they take personal action or not, um, 
but have broader and greater awareness of these issues as they affect our practice. We cannot just focus on, you know, the, as I, I read in, in the beginning, sort of that intimate, you know, one-on-one um, therapy space in the office. Of course, that's what we train for years and years and years and ongoing um, to improve upon. And that is absolutely crucial to doing good work and helping people. But we have to have greater awareness of the systems in which we're embedded and which affect how we can practice. And um, so we have simple ways for people to take some action. They can sign, you know, our petitions as they come out. We've had a couple of really successful petitions that have garnered more than 50,000 signatures each. Um, They can attend our events. Um, They can educate themselves and also Know, try to educate their their patients as these issues come up, as patients complain about their insurance coverage. Um, it's a moment to offer some education um, to patients as well, so they can be more empowered and authorized to take more control of of their insurance policies and their own treatment. So there's many many different ways um, to take action, um, but as an organization we are very biased towards action. And um, we are doing a lot. Maybe (laughs) we're trying to get our our hands around all that we're doing, Um, but we have a strong bias for action uh, because this needs to change. Speaking of a strong bias, I have to ask you, you, Linda Michaels, you could have just practiced in your office and read a very peaceful well, not peaceful. You're a therapist. No one's therapist lives are peaceful. But what? How? What is this call to action? Where does that come from? Talk, talk to us about why you care so much. You know, I, I, I don't know. Perhaps all the reasons, but um, I have often felt very strongly about issues like this. Um, that, um, you know, where people deserve more, where things are inequitable. And, um, you know, I think that's also been a part of, of growing up um, in my house. I mean, my, my mom, for example, I mean, was not a march in the streets kind of person, but was very vocal in speaking out, as was her father, about um, things that were uh, problematic, uh, things they didn't agree with, things that they thought um, could be and should be done better. Um, and, um, you know, I think we had talked about, I called my mom about a month ago and I said, hey, mom, what what are you doing? She's like, oh, I'm writing a protest letter. Um, so, it, um, you know, I think very um, ingrained in, in sort of how I, I grew up. Um, I feel like I have some skills to to bring to this endeavor, perhaps from my business experience. I personally have benefited tremendously from my own depth therapy, and I I very much want that for other people should they want it themselves. Well, thank you. I have uh, two more questions. One is future projects because you don't do enough, Linda. That's right. We don't we don't have enough going on. Um, well, just last week we um, did a screening, so it's it's not 
quite a future project, but it's very recent. We screened uh, Ken Burns' production, uh, Hiding in Plain Sight, Youth Mental Illness, which was a four-hour movie that debuted on PBS last year. We screened 30 minutes of that and then had a panel discussion with Amy Kennedy, who's one of our advisors, um, Eric Ewers, who's a co-director of the film, and then two of the youth. There were about 20 different uh, young people featured in the film, and two of those um, people were at our panel discussion. And it was truly, yeah, it was really wonderful to um, both hear Eric's personal um, reasons for really embracing the topic of mental health and telling the story of so many young people who were scared, were suffering, did not know what was happening to them, um, and finally their journey to get help and to feel better, and then to have a couple of those those youths join us and speak for themselves. I mean, I think this is an incredibly powerful film. I'm delighted that the the team is working on another film right now on adults, adult mental health, and hoping to be um, helpful to them as they put that together. But the recording of, of this film event is on our website. Great. It's, yeah, and I also encourage folks to, to watch the whole film. It's, it's just, it's amazing. Um, we have our next round of research with the general public that we're analyzing right now. Um, and that data should be out soon. We'll be sharing that and presenting that and, and happy um, to share that with folks. Um, should be quite soon. Um, we have plans for more research um, as well, including, for example, researching our own network of therapists and um, documenting their experiences with it, their practice and insurance payments and so we can, you know, provide this information. I mean, with so many organizations say you can't talk about your fees, you can't talk about what insurance reimburses. That's actually, if you read, um, if you read the law, that's that's not really the case. You're not violating any antitrust laws by doing so. And we really want to uh, get some data out there to show, you know, this is the impact, the systemic impact that insurance companies are having on um, as they devalue therapy and and pay therapists a lot less um, and essentially do not give them any sort of even a cost of living raise on an right. annual basis. Um, and we're working on another journal issue. We put out one issue with psychoanalytic inquiry, which then turned into our book. And we're working on a second issue with articles contributed um, by our board of directors. And this issue is dedicated to Erica Schmidt, who was um, our vice chair and was a part of Cyan really since the beginning and who unfortunately passed away uh, just about a year ago in a really untimely um, and, and, and very sad uh, death. And so we have coming together as a board to put this, this issue together in her honor um, and as I, we had talked about earlier, we are also adding to our website resources and information um, for the general public. But um, more so than that, we are planning and going to embark on a big awareness camp and education campaign for the general public. So 
you might just, yeah, see some of that on TikTok one of these days. <laughs> I'm not on TikTok, but I'm anxious to hear about it. And that's that's a wonderful tribute. I'm glad to hear that. So, Linda, there is so much in this book. And we've only kind of, we have not done our depth work in this interview. Is there anything you would like to add before we go that we left out? Anything striking you that we kind of ignored um i you know there there is so much in the book i'm so grateful for this opportunity i think it's also can be a wonderful textbook for um so any professors or teachers out there who are listening i encourage you to check it out for your classes there's a lot of information in there that actually people therapists should know um as they practice but we don't often get in grad school a lot of information about the insurance, about parity, um, the DSM, you know, things like that, as I said, and, and working with different populations and a couple of great articles just about the, the value and the beauty of depth therapy. So I, I would love for people to check it out and also, um, you know, to think about the large or, or maybe just the small ways that you can become more active in in your life as a therapist, whether that's joining us at, at Cyan, um, whether that's um, you know taking up a conversation with your patient when they mention something about uh, their insurance coverage or their treatment or something like that. I mean, or even just talking to a neighbor and um, enlightening them about depth therapy and trying to demystify it for them. There's lots of ways actually that we can stand up for the work that we do it really doesn't take that much and it can really make a difference. So your next life, you will most likely be a politician who accomplishes lots of things. <laughs> well, Linda, thank you so much for this important contribution. This book is really necessary for all of us. I admire your hard work and I very much appreciate you and your organization. And I wish you the best. Oh, thank you, Judith, so much. I really appreciated the invitation and our conversation. And thank you so very much for your support. Be well. Bye. Thank you. Bye-bye.